This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Good evening, everyone. My name is Robert Barron. I'm the director of the UCSF Osher Mini Medical School for the Public. And on behalf of all of us at UCSF, uh, welcome to our mini medical school course, Optimizing Your Primary Care. So tonight I'm going to talk about diabetes. I'm going to be fairly clinical um, and assume uh, that you have some familiarity with diabetes. Uh, and I'm really going to focus on what's new in the last year or two uh, that's really uh, reshaping the way we think about diabetes as we care for patients. I've entitled the talk Management of Type 2 Diabetes, Selecting Treatment Goals, Maximizing Non-Drug Therapy, and using medications old and new. Uh, the truth is, uh, the majority of the talk will be on the medications, since that's what's newest, uh, but we'll also spend some time reviewing uh, treatment goals. And I have no relevant financial relationships um, in this material. So as I mentioned, uh, we'll uh, focus on uh, what's relatively new. One of the things that's most exciting about talking about diabetes um, whether it's to physicians uh, or, or students and residents or uh, to you, uh, is that each year the American Diabetes Association publishes in their journal called Diabetes Care uh, an updated uh, set of practice guidelines and treatment recommendations. Uh, this is a, a very long document. Um, they have an executive summary. They have slide sets. Uh, and it's something that we recommend uh, that uh, both patients and doctors uh, glance at um, uh, each year. It comes out in January. And so I will reflect on uh, the newest guidelines, which came out this January, uh, and comment, uh, as I have with uh, some of the other topics we've discussed, uh, on where the guidelines uh, make uh, total, total sense and where there's still some uh, nuance and, uh, and, and uncertainty. Uh, we're going to talk about updates in screening and diagnosis, uh, controversies in blood sugar control or glycemic control. And then, as I mentioned, we'll spend the bulk of the evening talking about updates and new strategies uh, for medications with an emphasis on newer medications. So what about screening? Um, these guidelines haven't changed very much in the last year, but they did change a year or two ago, uh, mostly uh, in the observation that uh, two-thirds of Americans have a body mass index over 25. 25 is the upper limit of normal, and anything above 25 uh, constitutes overweight. And so if you have a body mass index over 25, which again, two-thirds of Americans will, uh, and any of the yellow uh, risk factors uh, shown on the slide, so inactivity, family history, um, certain ethnicities, uh, a history of gestational uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, lipid disorders, polycystic ovary disease, a skin condition called acanthosis negricans, uh, or a, a, certainly a history of cardiovascular disease, uh, those are people in which we would recommend screening uh, for diabetes. Uh, right away. The new information, that list hasn't changed very much, but the new information is that in Asian Americans, uh, the risk of uh, developing diabetes occurs at a lower body mass index that is thinner 
individuals of Asian American ancestry uh, are more at risk for uh, diabetes uh, than uh, uh, Caucasian Americans. And African Americans actually is the opposite, where the risk, rather than starting at 25, uh, begins to increase closer to 28 and 30. Uh, but the new information is really in uh, Asian Americans uh, that the screening recommendations are now as low as the body mass index of 23. For everyone else, we recommend screening uh, at least uh, once um, at age 35, similar to what we recommend with cholesterols, for example. Uh, and we would recommend repeating that uh, every few years, every three years. So we do recommend screening for uh, diabetes and not waiting for symptoms to develop. That is, we're seeking to detect it uh, early. The definition of type 2 diabetes, uh, which is the uh, form most almost exclusively uh, seen in, uh, as new in adults, um, is uh, a fasting blood sugar or fasting plasma glucose of greater than 126. Now, the uh, hemoglobin A1C test has been around for some time, and for many, many years, we used it mostly to follow patients who already had established uh, diabetes. And the test didn't quite have the accuracy that we want from a, a screening test to apply it in that manner. However, about five or eight years ago, that changed, and the uh, testing uh, characteristics of the A1C improved. And now for some time, and again, this hasn't changed, uh, we can use either an A1C uh, and or a fasting plasma glucose, that is a blood glucose that you would get in the doctor's office, uh, as a screening test. Uh, you need two measurements uh, over time, um, and uh, they can either be two A1Cs or two fasting blood sugars, uh, one of each, um, and uh, whichever is uh, most convenient. Uh, often, uh, the fasting blood glucose is less expensive, uh, depending on insurance. Um, and so we might start with that. And if it's borderline or high, uh, then confirm it with uh, a hemoglobin A1C. But the advantage of the hemoglobin A1C, which represents your blood sugar over the last three months, rather than, say, the last 24 or 48 hours, is that you don't need to be fasting to do the hemoglobin A1C. So if you're seeing your clinician in the afternoon, uh, but you want to get this done, uh, you can do the A1C, whereas a plasma glucose would not be as accurate. Ironically, uh, uh, or coincidentally, uh, the uh, same is true with cholesterol now, as, as we mentioned. You can measure cholesterol in the afternoon as well. Also doesn't need to be fasting. So you can get uh, your cholesterol measurements and your A1C measurements on a non-fasting specimen. We still sometimes ask patients to fast uh, because the plasma glucose uh, provides additional information. Uh, and in some patients, uh, some of the lipid fractions can be sensitive to meals. Um, but in general, it works fine on a non-fasting specimen. Uh, you can also use an oral glucose tolerance test. We don't do that very much. It's done more in obstetrics and uh, women, uh, people who are pregnant. Um, and you can also, if people uh, come into the hospital and have very high blood sugars, you can also make the diagnosis of uh, diabetes. And again, the take-home point is you need uh, more than one measurement over time. Now, what do we do with the data? Uh, well, if you're 
Uh, blood sugar is um, less than uh, 5.6 or less. Uh, we consider that normal. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, if you're um, between 5.7 and 6.4, then you have glucose intolerance, or what we increasingly call in the United States, pre-diabetes. This is as the uh, obesity uh, epidemic and prevalence has increased in the United States, uh, the prevalence of uh, uh, blood sugar uh, abnormalities and glucose intolerance have also increased. Um, so we're seeing more and more uh, bo of both diabetes itself and pre-diabetes. The major risk of pre-diabetes is that it may progress to diabetes. Uh, so the advantage of identifying pre-diabetes early is that this is the point at which we really intensify our treatment with uh, lifestyle. And so one of the best studies of lifestyle ever performed uh, was a study uh, run by the federal government called the Diabetes Prevention Program. Uh, and it was a randomized trial of patients who were treated uh, with um, lifestyle intervention, which was very intensive, uh, a medication, in this case, metformin, which I'll say more about, uh, or a control group. And in this study, <clears throat> which was, again, very well done and, and quite large, lifestyle intervention actually outperformed metformin. And I'll show you in a little while, metformin is a pretty good medication. And it's one of the few times in uh, modern medicine where a lifestyle intervention outperformed a good medication. Uh, with blood pressure control, for example, when we discussed all the uh, changes, lifestyle changes you can use to lower your blood pressure, if we compare uh, those changes, even in motivated patients with good medications, the medications are always more powerful. And the same is true with cholesterol. If you compare diet to medications, the medications are always more powerful. But with pre-diabetes, Lifestyle uh, has been shown, at least as done, uh, as performed by the Diabetes Prevention Program, uh, to be more effective even than uh, one of our uh, better medications. Interestingly, uh, because this study was so well done, Medicare uh, and others have fun uh, uh, will fund your participation in the Diabetes Prevention Program, uh, and have contracted with the YMCA's around the country. Uh, so that you can look into uh, becoming a member of the Diabetes Prevention Program going forward. And it's a very intensive 16-week uh, program, uh, interprofessional with uh, diabetic educators, uh, nutritionists, and nurses, uh, and really uh, maximize your opportunity with uh, diet and exercise related to the prevention of diabetes. So that remains one of our most powerful uh, tools and again, it's uh, some of the best evidence that lifestyle uh, really can prevent uh, illness. The other thing <clears throat> that's important about uh, prediabetes is that it alone uh, does contribute to your cardiovascular risk. So as we talked about in the cholesterol talk, uh, as you accumulate risk factors, um, if you have prediabetes, that's another risk factor, and it increases your risk of having a heart, heart attack or stroke. Um, it's not that big a risk factor compared to true diabetes, uh, but it is. Uh, it, it does contribute. And as I mentioned, more importantly, if you have prediabetes and don't do anything about it with diet and exercise, 
uh, you're at high risk of advancing to true diabetes. And so uh, when your A1C gets over 6.5 or your blood sugar gets 126, again, to review, that's our criteria for true diabetes. Now, the one thing that's very interesting about this is that um, the World Health Organization uh, uses somewhat different standards for prediabetes uh, than uh, the United States. And so the uh, the World Health Organization, the WHO, uses a fasting sugar of 110 as abnormal uh, rather than uh, 100. Um, so you will see, I will see, and uh, we all see many patients uh, who uh, are thin and uh, don't have a strong family history of diabetes, exercising, uh, and so on, but they may have a very mildly abnormal fasting sugar, 103, 107, the next time it's 98, then it's 110. Uh, and those patients live in that area below 109 for the most part, uh, have a normal hemoglobin A1C, uh, and generally speaking, uh, probably don't have prediabetes of any significance. So it's almost as if we're dividing prediabetes into two parts. Uh, the lower limits of it, when you first cross those thresholds in the United States, blood sugars of 100 to 109 and A1C from 5.7 to 6.0 may not be as significant for many patients as the upper uh, half of the prediabetes cohort. So uh, if you have everything normal and your A1C is normal, but you happen to have a blood sugar that's 103 every now and again, uh, that's most likely normal. Uh, It needs to be followed, uh, but is not uh, significantly a risk factor for developing diabetes uh, or itself for cardiovascular disease. So it's very interesting. So I'll often say to patients, you know, your blood test was a little abnormal. The blood sugar was 103. Um, uh, Last time was 99. The time before that was 106. Uh, And if we were in uh, 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 Sweden uh, having this conversation or in London or in in Germany, uh, I would say that was a normal value. Uh, but um, in, uh, in the United States, we consider it abnormal. So you uh, may encounter that on your lab results. The take-home point here is that uh, prediabetes is an uh, easy way, easy test uh, to do a blood sugar and A1C. Uh, it's important to identify uh, prediabetes because we know we have a very effective treatment with lifestyle, uh, and we know we can prevent uh, diabetes. All right, so let's move on, and um, we'll talk about um, diabetes itself, um, as we have with some of the other uh, um, uh, sub, uh, uh, lectures. Uh, let's talk about a patient. Uh, this, <clears throat> this particular one is a 74-year-old patient who has established type 2 diabetes. Um, they also have hypertension, uh, esophageal reflux disease, Uh, and uh, pretty uh, uh, uncomfortable osteoarthritis of the knees and hips. They're taking uh, uh, several good medications. These are common uh, older medications that are very well established. Metformin is a diabetes pill we'll talk about. Lysenopril, one of the blood pressure pills. Atorvastatin, our go-to cholesterol medicine. Omeprazole, an antacid medicine. Tylenol for arthritis. Uh, and topical diclofenac gel, 
which also works for arthritis uh, in some joints, uh, particularly the knee. On examination, uh, the, blood, uh, the blood pressure is 132 over 80, so uh, very close to uh, our goal. And her body mass index is 29. Uh, that puts her in the overweight category, uh, uh, but not in the official uh, uh, patient with obesity category, which would be over 30. Her physical examination is normal, and there's nothing to suggest uh, any complications of diabetes, no nerve damage, um, eye damage, and so on. And so the question we ask ourselves and, and that I want you just to think about as you're going through this, and especially for those of you who have diabetes, uh, think about where you stand on this. Uh, and what we do, just like with blood pressure and just like with cholesterol, is we set goals. And these goals are all potentially achievable uh, because our medications are potent. Um, now, they have side effects, and we'll discuss that in a bit. Uh, but we can lower the A1C uh, relatively effectively in most patients who are willing to use uh, medications and don't have uh, intolerable side effects. But that doesn't mean we should, uh, because we're always balancing benefits and harms. Um, uh, and, we, uh, and we know that if we, uh, and the question is, um, at which uh, uh, cut point offers the best combination of benefits and harms for a patient, in this case, someone in her mid-70s, um, should it be a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5, 7, less than 7.5, less than 8, or less than 9? Now, it turns out this is controversial, and this is very analogous to our conversation about high blood pressure and cholesterol, uh, that different uh, specialty uh, societies on uh, different clinicians uh, we'll have different thresholds, um, and we'll try to review um, uh, some of the uh, nuance here as we uh, go through uh, this case and others. Now, one of the big controversies uh, <clears throat> in diabetes care since is that is what is the relationship between blood sugar and blood sugar control? that is the threshold that I just showed on the last slide of A1C, and what impact does that treatment goal have on the development of diabetes complications? Well, it turns out you'd think this was an easy um, question to answer, and you'd also think by this time we would know the answer. Um, this has been a controversy ever since I was a medical student. Uh, we had two famous uh, endocrinologists at UCSF uh, who had different opinions on this, and they were uh, true experts in the field, but they were on uh, different sides of the question. One favored very tight control, uh, the other favored uh, higher threshold, looser control, uh, and those controversies continue today um, uh, in, in, to uh, a great extent. Now, the take-home point in this complicated slide is if you look in the area where it says microvascular disease, uh, here are the five major studies uh, that were big enough and well done enough and long enough uh, to try to answer this, these questions. And what all the studies show, these first two were in type 1 diabetes, 
these last three and some type two, these last three in type two. And you can see that there's really no controversy that tighter control prevents microvascular uh, diabetic complications. Uh, and for the most part, that's things like uh, nerve disease, eye disease, and so on. So for type 1 diabetes, uh, we, there's a consensus around tight control. Uh, and people are younger. Um, they have a longer uh, lifespan with diabetes. Um, and uh, it's very important that we prevent microvascular complications. And so we treat our type 1 diabetes uh, to normal as best we can. Uh, we use pumps, we use monitors, uh, and we take this very, very seriously. In type 2 diabetes, there's also advantages, as you can see from all the green arrows, uh, of a tighter control as far as uh, those complications. The wrinkle is that when you get diabetes in midlife or certainly later life, in many cases, you may not have enough years with diabetes to develop severe microvascular disease. Now, that is not uniform. There are patients who develop uh, a very rapid eye disease, kidney disease, and uh, uh, neurologic disease. But in general, uh, many patients who have had diabetes since they were midlife who don't have complications are unlikely to develop them as they get older. We continue to test them and follow them for that. We check people's feet. I check their eyes uh, with a careful eye exam, um, but the risk is lower than it is for young people with type 1 diabetes. The disappointing thing has been that when we look at cardiovascular disease, which means heart attack and stroke, either fatal or non-fatal, we uh, see equivocal results. Uh, that is to say that the major studies in type 2 diabetes uh, have not consistently shown a benefit from tighter control. So for example, the way uh, one of the best studies say the ACCORD study was done in the United States, uh, com uh, uh, try, uh, compared uh, uh, treating some patients to a hemoglobin A1C of less than 6.5, whereas the other uh, group was treated between seven and eight. Um, and there was no difference uh, between those two uh, endpoints in cardiovascular disease. And the ACCORD study was a little disturbing because it was even worse, which is that there was actually an increase in all-cause mortality. Uh, that is to say, people who were treated to less than 6.5 actually did worse and died. Uh, every one out of 333 patients uh, died. Um, and so uh, we were very worried about that tighter control uh, for a bit. Since then, with some longer follow-up on some of these other studies, uh, and uh, combining the, all the studies together, it may well be that the ACCORD study was the outlier uh, and may have been a statistical uh, bad luck because um, we have not seen that increase in mortality uh, with tighter control in the other studies. But I think you can say with some confidence uh, that uh, although treating diabetes is very important for preventing um, the uh, microvascular complications, um, there's not strong, strong, compelling evidence that it prevents heart attacks and strokes just based on the blood sugar level itself. Now, you'll see where, the, where I'm going. Uh, in, later in this talk, uh, I'm going to show you uh, some newer evidence, not that questions about the blood sugar control, 
But the fact that we now have other ways uh, to prevent uh, heart disease and stroke in patients with diabetes, even though the blood sugar control may not need to go so low. All right, so this is a complicated subject. Like I said, uh, we have many uh, uh, famous uh, researchers in this uh, field who have spent their whole careers on this. So it's really unfair to try to summarize this in one, one slide, but let me try. Uh, what I, uh, the point is that there's no consistent evidence that quote tight control that is very, that is normalizing blood sugar or getting the A1C less than 6.5 reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease or mortality in type 2 diabetes. Now, I haven't shown you the data, uh, but embedded in the, some of the studies I showed, particularly one of the studies from the VA, uh, it suggests that patients who we catch younger, even though it's type 2 diabetes, but if we catch them in their 40s or 50s uh, rather than 60s or 70s, that patients with shorter uh, diabetes duration may have a longer opportunity to benefit from tighter control. And similarly, if patients don't have any evidence of cardiovascular disease yet, uh, um, those are patients who may benefit from uh, earlier control. I'm sorry, from tighter control uh, if they're a bit younger. As I mentioned, there's a clear decrease in microvascular disease with more intensive blood sugar control. However, there's, everything in medicine has potential harm. And here the harm is that there's more low blood sugars and more weight gain with the more intensive regimens. So in order to get the blood sugar less, uh, less than 6.5, it's hard to do. Uh, you have to use uh, more medications. You have to monitor your blood sugar more carefully. Um, um, you may be on four shots of, in, of insulin a day, at least in some of the uh, older regimens, uh, and there's risk of hypoglycemia. Um, and so that's a potential harm uh, of treating to the uh, tighter control. Uh, also, especially when insulin is being used, there's more weight gain uh, uh, with insulin and some of the other medicines uh, that I'll talk about. So there are some harms uh, to everything we do, uh, potentially, um, and tight control um, does have some disadvantages as well. So what does the American Diabetes Association uh, and other panels of experts suggest at this time uh, for most patients? Uh, and the, the consensus is that for most patients, the di uh, A1C should be less than seven. Uh, there are uh, specialists who say 6.5, but again, the consensus among the Diabetes Association um, uh, uh, which includes many diabetologists and endocrinologists and other specialists, uh, is seven. Uh, but they do say that lower goals may be beneficial for some if done safely. Um, so, like I said, someone who's younger, uh, who's highly motivated um, and willing to uh, do the work it takes uh, to safely do uh, tighter control, uh, that may be fine as well. But then they also say this third bullet, which is that less stringent goals, maybe as high as eight, uh, are indicated for patients, uh, either certainly those who are uh, where limited life expectancy uh, closer to the end of life and where harms are greater than benefits. Now, the issue of where harms are greater than benefit is very subjective. Um, and in our spirit of shared decision-making, 
uh, that's very much where you, uh, as the uh, the person managing your diabetes with your clinician, uh, uh, have to uh, express your uh, uh, values and desires in this regard, because harms are defined by an individual uh, as well as by the clinician. So, um, if the, if it's if it's not worth it to you to uh, do one thing or another, or if you've had a lot of low sugar uh, or other complications. Uh, that itself may be a reason to uh, be looser. The American College of Physicians, which is the specialty society for internists, internal medicine specialists, actually says eight, uh, that the A1C should be between seven and eight. Um, so there is a debate uh, in the community. Uh, some specialists say 6.5. Uh, most people say seven-ish, uh, seven uh, to eight. Uh, and then some of the geriatricians have made the point uh, saying uh, as patients get older, um, maybe we shouldn't look at the A1C at all or can uh, let it ride even higher. And that's reflected in the next slide where the American Diabetes Association also weighed in on this. Uh, and they said for patients over 65, so not that old, uh, but patients over 65 and above, if, you, if patients are doing well, and have few coexisting chronic illnesses um, are, are intact uh, cognitively and functional status, then they're comfortable with 7 to 7.5. So already you can see we're getting a little bit of flexibility in patients over age 65, even from the Diabetes Association. In older folks who are beginning to uh, have more challenges, um, uh, more medical illnesses, uh, maybe some uh, difficulty with some of the independent uh, activities of daily life, or maybe some mild cognitive impairment, uh, then clearly uh, eight is a very reasonable goal. And much like our geriatricians, uh, the, Diabet the Diabetes Association is now saying that as people get uh, have more severe uh, complicated complicating illnesses, certainly uh, with a shortened life expectancy towards the end of life, uh, or more severe cognitive impairment or early dementia uh, or difficulty with activities of daily living, that what we should do is really focus on symptoms and preventing hypoglycemia. So for older patients, this is very important that the risk of hypoglycemia is more dangerous to some than the risks of elevated or hyperglycemia. So to summarize, um, even the American Diabetes Association will say that there's some flexibility here um, that uh, you can treat to 7 or 7.5 if the patient's motivated and able. Uh, uh, for many patients over 65 or certainly over uh, 75, uh, letting it ride to 8 is totally fine. And many of the internists uh, will uh, favor uh, letting it ride to 8. Um, and again, for patients uh, who are even older uh, and, and more complex, uh, we should focus more on symptoms and not any specific A1C. So there's no one correct answer from my theoretical uh, patient. Um, <clears throat> uh, because she was uh, uh, 74, um, has multiple, uh, has had other medical illnesses, I was already taking uh, a bunch of medications. Um, it may well be that she uh, was less interested in taking more medications and doing uh, some of the things it would take 
uh, to lower the A1C. And so we might just say, uh, let her be uh, between seven and eight um, as a perfectly uh, adequate control uh, for her. Uh, and again, different patients in different uh, states, different condition will make different decisions. Uh, but this uh, uh, is, I think, a compromise uh, of how I would practice um, uh, if the patient shared uh, that uh, point of view. Okay, so to summarize, uh, this is a complicated uh, slide, um, but it makes the point <clears throat> that these decisions of where to, uh, what cut point to use are nuanced and require a conversation about a variety of different factors. Um, and so again, uh, here's seven in the middle, and the idea is if you're on this side, you would let it run a little higher, uh, and maybe on this side a little uh, tighter, uh, or certainly less than seven. But if it's newly diagnosed, if there's not much risk of low sugar, if the life expectancy is long, uh, if there are very few other illnesses, um, if there are no other uh, vascular problems, if the patient's highly motivated um, and has good self-care, um, and has uh, and the resources are readily available to assist the the, the person. Uh, then tighter control, uh, if a lot several or more than several of these are present, uh, might be reasonable. Um, but if the opposite is the case, where there's a lot of hypoglycemia that you've had the disease for a long time, life expectancy is shorter. Um, there are other diseases uh, that you already have cardiovascular disease. Uh, the patient doesn't want to do it, um, uh, and uh, there are limited resources. You could see where the, that more less stringent control uh, makes sense as well. So this is a, a nice summary of how we think about this as sort of a sliding scale, if you will, uh, depending on these different factors. And this is what goes into make up shared decision making in this disease. Okay. Let me spend uh, the rest of the time talking about uh, medications. I'm going to start uh, with a, a few comments about some of the older medications uh, and <clears throat> just some new, uh, new evidence about them, uh, and then um, move on to the newer medications. And newer is in quotes, as you'll see, some of them have been around for a while. And here's uh, an example, uh, a little uh, schematic uh, that talks about uh, the timeline of the development of uh, medications for diabetes. Uh, as you know, uh, insulin has been around since 1920. Um, the sulfonylureas um, have been also around uh, for a long, long time. And, uh, and metformin, uh, really the main biguanide that we use in the United States, uh, came to the United States uh, for, as an approved medication in the mid-1990s. So for many years, those were our medications. Uh, and then the next round of medications, uh, the TZDs and some of these others uh, had advantages and disadvantages. Uh, and so for a good long time, uh, the main treatment was insulin uh, and then insulin sulfonylureas and metformin. And that was our approach for, uh, uh, for many decades. However, in the last uh, two decades, uh, we've seen a dramatic increase in new medications, uh, and we'll go over some of those. Now, what's fascinating about this disease and the, this group of medications 
uh, is that the, the different drugs work in different parts of the body, whether it's the liver or the gut or the pancreas uh, or in your appetite control or glucose reabsorption or the use in the muscle uh, or the fat cells. Uh, so these are all way uh, actions, mechanisms of action of these different drugs. So much like with high blood pressure and increasingly with high blood cholesterol and other heart failure and other diseases, cancer for sure, uh, we approach um, this illness uh, coming at it from different angles with different uh, strategies. Um, and so it makes it very interesting to combine the medications. And even when we didn't have um, uh, such great medications, we could still use more than one uh, as a way uh, to maximize the benefits of each one and minimize the side effects. Uh, and we've went through this, I think, already in that other slide when we talked about uh, how we decide about what the threshold is, it's a very similar kind of thought process as to which medication to use. How good is the medicine at lowering your blood sugar? What is the risk of low sugar that's too low? Other side effects? Uh, is it uh, very expensive and covered by insurance? Uh, does it cause weight gain or weight loss? Um, are there other side effects in terms of patient acceptance? Is it an injection or an oral medicine? Um, and the most recent and, uh, and the, the game-changing uh, data has come from the fact that some of our medicines now, independent of their ability to lower blood sugar, uh, reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease and kidney disease. And so these things now, uh, particularly this last bullet, <clears throat> now become more important uh, in our thought process as we select medications. And again, just to reiterate, what we're doing when we think about um, treating a patient with diabetes, for years, we focus on the glycemic management. That's what I've been talking about so far. Uh, but it's worth knowing that two of the other pillars uh, to reduce diabetes complications are things we've talked about earlier in the course. That is good blood pressure control and good cholesterol control. And it turns out, uh, at least until relatively recently, that both of these two, blood pressure control and lipid management, outperform blood sugar management, especially for preventing cardiovascular complications. I showed you before that glycemic management doesn't lower cardiovascular risk very much, but we know that blood pressure and lipid management do. And again, the new kid on the block is that we now have evidence that there are other newer drugs uh, that independent of the blood sugar in fact, in, impact uh, also prevent uh, complications of heart disease and stroke and kidney failure. But it's important to think of these four pillars as um, uh, uh, working together to prevent complications. And again, um, the way this is drawn, this is from the Diabetes Association. Uh, this all sits on a base of lifestyle modification and diabetes education. Now, I don't expect you to uh, see, uh, read this slide in detail, but each of these boxes represents a randomized trial uh, that is an experimental drug versus a placebo uh, medication, looking at how a diabetes drug works, not to lower their blood sugar, but to prevent uh, cardiovascular complications. And each of the different uh, color boxes represents different glasses, classes of drugs. 
And so the pinkish ones represent the SGLT2 inhibitors, and the light orange represents the GLP-1 receptor uh, agonists. And we'll talk about those uh, in uh, some detail, uh, but others also have uh, outcome studies. Why are there so many studies uh, looking at this question? It's an interesting story, and it turned out it was not not exactly by accident, but sort of. And it started um, in the uh, early uh, 2010s or so when uh, one of the, uh, uh, an expert in the field wrote a very important paper, I believe it was in the Lancet, uh, that tried to look at uh, all the the impact of one of the drugs that happened to be uh, rosaglitazone, uh, looking at the impact of rosaglitazone, which is one of the uh, TZD classes of drugs. Uh, and his conclusion after analyzing several, all of the clinical trials that had been done, because remember, many of these clinical trials are small, they're funded by the drug companies, uh, and you have to put several of them together sometimes to uh, get the bottom line. And he did that, and he showed that rosaglitazone, in his work, um, his meta-analysis, led to increased risk of heart attacks. It turns out that paper may not have been correct. Um, <clears throat> And uh, I think I have a slide commenting on that in in a moment. Um, But uh, there were flaws in his methodology. um, But it didn't matter because rosaglitazone, it wasn't taken off the market, but everyone stopped using it. And luckily, there was another TZD available at that time, a pioglitazone. um, And many people switched uh, the patients, either stopped both drugs uh, or switched to pioglitazone. Uh, and uh, and went on our business. Because remember, uh, at that time, we didn't have many other choices. TZDs were one of the early uh, drugs that, that were developed. The point of the story is that because of this controversy of did a class of diabetes drugs, which lowered blood sugar, however, have a negative effect on the thing we really cared about, which was preventing heart disease and strokes and major diabetic complications and death. And so that made the uh, FDA uh, rule, <clears throat> uh, change their rules and basically say, look, we'll approve these drugs if you can show they lower blood sugar, uh, but we expect you to do what we call a cardiovascular outcome trial and prove to us that the drugs are safe. And the goal of these trials was basically safety. It was not really to show benefit. It was just to show that they were safe because there was fear that maybe uh, they were causing uh, increase uh, complications. And so as a result, uh, we started seeing all of these different studies um, uh, that uh, began to answer the question of, uh, are these drugs safe uh, in preventing heart disease and stroke, or at least not causing risk or other endpoints? And what happened was, that much to, I think, our surprise, not only were they safe, but they actually reduced the risk of heart disease, strokes, heart failure, uh, and kidney disease uh, in different cases with different drugs. And I'll go over which ones. But it totally changed our approach to these medications. Now, um, I'll, I'll come back to that in the context of obesity. I know we talked about that last week. But the one thing I want to highlight, and, and uh, uh, 
Dr. Thiara mentioned this uh, briefly last week, is that when these drugs are used for obesity, and some of them are used in both conditions, we do not yet have this kind of menu of cardiovascular outcome trials. In fact, we have none. Uh, and what we have instead is a history of drugs that were taken off the market because they increase risk. And so there's still uncertainty about using some of these drugs in obesity without diabetes, in contrast to uh, treating patients with diabetes. In diabetes, we know they're safe, we know they're effective, and we know that we can do it for uh, many years. Uh, in obesity, we're still using them uh, when we can, but we don't have this kind of uh, data. So cardiovascular outcome trial, CBOT, is a phrase that you may hear uh, again. All right, let's go through some of the drugs quickly. Um, uh, metformin, uh, as I mentioned, has uh, been one of our older drugs. It's been around since about uh, 1995. Uh, it's been studied in the United States and uh, elsewhere uh, for many years. There are over 40 randomized trials. Um, and the bottom line is that metformin is an excellent medication. It lowers your uh, cardiovascular mortality by about 25%. So metformin is a safe medication. It works. Uh, we think it saves lives. Um, and uh, it's for years has been our drug of first choice. Um, and so uh, uh, that has been standard of care that if you're going to use uh, an oral medication for diabetes, type 2 diabetes, you start with metformin. Interestingly, that's no longer always the case. And as of last year, it was the first year that this was written, uh, but it was written even more strongly this year, is that metformin is no longer always the first drug. It still may be the first drug. <clears throat> and if it's a drug, the only drug you're taking, it may be a perfectly fine drug for you because it does work. It does prevent, uh, does reduce mortality. Uh, the studies are a bit older, um, but it's an inexpensive drug. It's a well-tolerated drug. Uh, it does not cause weight gain. It's sort of weight neutral or maybe decrease a few pounds. Um, um, so it's an excellent drug if you're on it. Um, uh, but it, as we're thinking about starting drugs, it still might be the first drug that many uh, physicians would, uh, many clinicians would turn to, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, and in fact, as you'll see when I show you uh, the decision-making algorithm, uh, you'll see uh, the wording that it's no longer always the first drug. So it used to be a must. Uh, last year was sort of a should that uh, maybe we should use it most of the time, but it doesn't have to be. This year, it's even more uh, uh, flexible. Uh, that is to say that you may want to use other risk-reducing medications earlier than metformin. Uh, and that not being on metformin shouldn't be a deterrent. In other words, if for some reason you don't want to start metformin, you have side effects or whatever, and you want to go straight to the other drugs, you can. Uh, and so uh, this is brand new. It's for January this year. Uh, but the guidelines are now giving clinicians more flexibility than the prior uh, guidelines. Now, sulfonylureas I showed you was uh, after insulin, the oldest drug. Uh, these are drugs uh, like gliburide and glimepiride and others of that uh, sort. Uh, they've been around for uh, generations. Uh, and there's been uh, concern for many years that maybe 
the studies weren't so good, but maybe there was a little bit of a signal uh, that sulfonylureas actually increased mortality. Um, and so that's been a little bit of a concern. It's been in the back of everyone's mind, uh, although the studies were not of high quality. Again, they were much older before we had these really high quality cardiovascular outcome trials. Um, but there's a little bit of a signal that maybe sulfonylureas uh, may increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. The newest data is, is reassuring. Uh, this was a study uh, that compared uh, one of the newer drugs with one of the sulfonylureas. And it was meant to be a non-inferiority study, that is to show that the new drug was not inferior uh, to um, uh, the older drug, the sulfonylurea. And in fact, that's what it showed. The hazard ratio was close to one, uh, which means there was no difference uh, between these two drugs. So this is sort of a backwards way of uh, getting to this point because this was uh, a study of a new drug, lenagliptin, uh, and the, uh, um, the um, investigators and the drug company were trying to demonstrate that it was safe and didn't have increased cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, and, but in fact, in doing so, rather than using a traditional placebo, they used a sulfonylurea uh, and showed that they were the same. So we don't know uh, because, uh, so, and since we now know that the linagliptin class of drugs decreases mortality uh, when it's compared to placebo, uh, we feel that this has given uh, uh, the sulfonylurea a little bit of a light, uh, more new lifeblood. And so the current thinking, although you'll see on the chart, uh, the algorithm, uh, they've sort of dropping down a little bit. Uh, but um, but one of the uh, leaders in this field wrote uh, just a few years ago, clinicians can continue to use low-cost sulfonylureas uh, with metformin for management of hyperglycemia and type 2 diabetes with confidence in their effectiveness for reducing microvascular complications and their cardiovascular safety. Now, this is a little out of date uh, and may be um, uh, sort of moving towards the end of the era uh, for sulfonylureas, but they've survived before. So we'll have to see they're very easy medicines to take. Uh, they do lower blood sugar effectively. Uh, and if the goal is to get the blood sugar down, uh, this is a very easy and inexpensive way to do that. So when cost is a major concern, um, th this is a, uh, an excellent option. Now, I mentioned that rosaglitazone, um, there was some concern about uh, whether it uh, cause increased cardiovascular disease. That original study uh, may not have been correct and from the 2010s, uh, but when a, a more sophisticated meta-analysis was done, in this case of 33 different studies, uh, they did show that rosaglitazone didn't increase the risk of heart attacks, but did increase the risk of heart failure uh, by 50%. So this is a drug that's fallen off the map. Um, the FDA never really uh, uh, disapproved it, so it's still around, but no one uses it. Um, and most people, if they need a, pyo, uh, a, um, a TZD, are on pioglitazone uh, uh, and, and or uh, uh, moving uh, again uh, to the newer drugs. So again, this is another drug that whose time may have passed, um, who's uh, falling out of favor. Now, the big news uh, was uh, what's called incretins. And these are uh, uh, drugs that were based on gut factors that promote insulin secretion in response to nutrients. What I, let me say that in a different way. What we know 
is that if you give a, a, a subject uh, calories or uh, sugars uh, by mouth and give the same amount by vein, that in the patient who took it by mouth, the body will secrete more insulin. So same amount of sugar, same amount of calories, uh, but if you take it by mouth, the, bot, uh, the pancreas will secrete more insulin. So that led people to think of, well, there must be something happening in the gut to stimulate insulin secretion in response to nutrients. And it turns out there is, um, and these are, these are um, uh, gut hormones that have been around for uh, ages, but we weren't sure what they did. Uh, so I remember learning about a CCK in medical school, um, but we didn't really know exactly what it did, but we knew it was a gut hormone. Uh, and, but, and, the, and more recently, the, the much more science on what's called the GLP-1s and GIP, um, and this is now the formation of our newer medications, at least one class of our newer medications. Uh, and this cartoon shows, uh, the same, makes the same point, uh, that uh, if you take in um, food, uh, the gut hormone, in this case, GLP-1, um, which is the basis of most of our medications um, in this class, uh, stimulates uh, insulin secretion, so that you have a positive, more insulin here, um, and less glucagon, which opposes insulin. In addition, uh, there's an effect on the uh, stomach. It slows gastric emptying, um, and so it, you get more of a sensation of fullness. Um, and there's a lot of interest about a direct effect on uh, appetite. Um, there are other hypotheses that have been seen in animal studies uh, in terms of uh, preserving um, pancreatic uh, lifespan, uh, but those have not been uh, fully uh, proven in, um, in humans. Uh, now, since that science, um, over the last uh, decade and a half or so, uh, the drug companies have produced um, a, a long list of uh, medications that uh, simulate the GLP hormone effect. So these are called GLP agonists, um, which are meant to have the same effect as our natural GLP, uh, which is to stimulate insulin secretion, slow gastric emptying, and uh, we think uh, decrease uh, appetite. There are two flavors here. One are the direct agonists, and this has turned out to be the type of medicine that's more successful. The other class of medicines um, has not quite panned out quite as uh, rigorously, and they still are used in some patients. And what these drugs do is they inhibit the body's breakdown of your natural GLP-1. So these are pills, so that's more convenient. These, with one exception, are all injections. So these, this class here, the DPP-4 inhibitors, uh, the gliptins, uh, Jardiance is an example of one that um, uh, will lower blood sugar, and it, it does so by increasing your um, natural GLP life. As you'll see in a minute, there may be some um, disadvantages of this class of medicine. So sort of the winner of this competition has been so far uh, the direct GLP agonists, the, the, diffi the difficulty is that these are injectable. 
<laughs> some of them are uh, every day injectable. Others are once a week. And I'm sure there'll be continued uh, work in this field. And I'll show you the data on uh, some of these in, in just a moment. Uh, but Ozembic, which is the most widely used of this class of drug, uh, is one of the trade names for semaglutide um, uh, shown here. Now, the DPP-4 uh, medicines um, have had a little bit of uh, uh, a, a less impressive uh, uh, history, um, at least for one of the newer ones. Um, there was an increase in uh, heart failure. CHF stands for uh, congestive heart failure. Uh, Citagliptin <clears throat> did not show that, but another uh, one in that class did. So in general, we have some data uh, suggests that these drugs uh, may have an increased risk of heart failure. Um, and maybe more importantly, they don't lead to a decrease in stroke and heart attacks the way two of our other classes of medicines do. So these drugs are available. They're new. Uh, they're oral. They're easy to take. They don't uh, cause a hypoglycemia, as, at least when taken alone. Um, and... Um, uh, so they can be used, especially citagliptin, um, uh, and are commonly still in use. But they're not as uh, exciting uh, as uh, two of the other classes of drugs. And, and this is uh, primarily uh, the uh, so-called glutide drugs, uh, the GLP-1 agonists. And liraglutide was uh, one of the first ones that was studied. Uh, this is a daily injection. Uh, Sexend is one of the brand names here. What you'll see is that even though they designed the study so that the A1C didn't change very much, they gave, gave the placebo group, it was supposed to be a, uh, glucose neutral. Uh, what they showed was that there were fewer cardiovascular outcomes with the gliraglutide, uh, and most excitingly, uh, there was a reduction in death uh, when patients took the liraglutide even in a four-year period. So this was very exciting. This was the first of these studies now about uh, six, seven years ago, um, and it began to really uh, change the outcome. The drugs had been around before that, as I showed you in that one of those early uh, uh, slides, uh, timeframe slide, uh, but we didn't know, uh, we knew that it lowered blood sugar, but we had a lot of other things that lowered blood sugar. Uh, but the exciting thing was, uh, when this uh, this study and others like it came out, suggesting that we could actually prevent cardiovascular events, stroke and heart attacks, and save lives, uh, uh, that got everyone's attention. A lot of excitement. Uh, and again, with uh, semaglutide, uh, um, similarly, uh, a nice reduction in 25% uh, reduction in cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, and again, uh, these were high-risk patients. Um, in this particular study, they didn't show a reduction in death, um, but did show a reduction when you combined uh, a non-fatal uh, stroke and heart attacks. In addition, when this was analyzed, it was also shown to reduce uh, kidney disease. So uh, these were very exciting studies. And since the mid-2010s, there have now been dozens of studies of these drugs. You remember that slide of all the studies uh, that have been published so far and many others, um, not on that slide that are more recent, uh, but we now have 
uh, several dozen studies of these, uh, this class of drugs to suggest that it does in fact prevent cardiovascular outcomes. So this is where all the excitement is. You can lower the blood sugar uh, and prevent microvascular complications, and you can uh, prevent cardiovascular events uh, directly with the medication, even independent of the blood sugar effect. Now, <clears throat> what really got people excited about uh, this class of medicines was an unexpected side effect, which is uh, that it caused weight loss. And so depending on the dose of the semaglutide, you can see uh, in the standard diabetes dose, there was about a 7% uh, a percent change in body weight. Uh, this is a nice amount. This is the same amount as, one, as was shown in the diabetes prevention study. Uh, so 7% of your body weight. So if you start at 200 uh, and you uh, uh, do either of those, you would lose 15 pounds or so. So that can be quite significant uh, for some people. Keep in mind, if you're 300 pounds, it's, you lose 20 pounds. It doesn't take you from 300 to 200. Uh, and the other point to keep in mind, as was uh, shown uh, very clearly by Dr. Thiara last week, is that all of these studies use intense lifestyle um, uh, care in conjunction with the, uh, the medication. Uh, so in other words, if you start taking this medicine because you have diabetes, but don't do anything about your diet or exercise, uh, it may help your blood sugar um, and it may lower your risk of cardiovascular disease some, but your weight won't change very much. More recently, they've been uh, the newer uh, form of this, which uh, Wegovi is the brand name, uh, is the red line. Uh, and as Diana showed last week, uh, shows even more weight loss, um, uh, which is sustained um, for, in this case, about a year and a half. So uh, these drugs are uh, very exciting. The problem is, as touched on last week, is that most insurance companies are not yet paying for Wigovi. Uh, sometimes we can get it through, and some plans um, uh, have been more uh, uh, open and uh, liberal, if you will, about, uh, about approving that. But if a patient has uh, diabetes, uh, then we can easily prescribe these medications uh, and, uh, and, in addition, uh, get nice weight loss. Now, the newest uh, drug uh, is uh, Manjuro or um, uh, terzepatide. Um, and this um, uh, also lowers your uh, A1C very nicely uh, and strikingly uh, really lowers your body weight. Uh, so here's percent change in body weight with this medication. Uh, depending on the dose you use, uh, you can get about a 15% reduction compared to placebo, 3%, so about a 12% reduction, uh, even with the lower dose, and with higher doses, uh, another few percent. But again, keep in mind, the placebo group lost 3% of their body weight. So these were people who were trying very hard to lose weight and diet. So the medica medication adds value over and above diet and exercise. But all the drugs that show that it works have been done in conjunction with diet and exercise, which is why we consider it an adjunct um, uh, and not a standalone uh, treatment. Unfortunately, at the present time, uh, uh, terzepatide is, uh, is not approved for weight loss. It is approved for diabetes. 
Um, and so um, this is becoming more widely available. And again, uh, it's a potent A1C uh, reducer uh, with uh, this very uh, advantageous, quote, side effect, uh, which is that the weight comes down uh, even more significantly. And what's interesting about this drug, as Diana discussed, is that this is both a GLP agonist and a different hormone called GIP that I mentioned briefly. And so again, it's working through two mechanisms um, in, uh, as, a gut horm as gut hormones. Now, the final class of medicine that I'm going to discuss tonight um, are the SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, these are drugs that work on the kidney. Uh, I took out the cartoon that shows how it works because it's a little complicated. Uh, and hard to read, but um, the bottom line is it interferes with the reabsorption of uh, glucose in the kidney. So if you eat, uh, if you have diabetes out of control and you eat um, and your blood sugar goes over, usually about 180 uh, in this case, if you're out of control, that's what's called the renal threshold. So if it gets over 180 or so, and it varies a little bit in patient to patient, but if it gets over 180, uh, then um, uh, you can uh, be confident uh, that uh, sugar will be spilled in the urine. And that causes some of the classic symptoms of diabetes of uh, polyuria, uh, which is frequent urination, uh, urinary tract infections, vaginal infections, and so on. Um, and also polyphagia, which means uh, wanting to eat more. Uh, so, and and polydipsia, which is increased thirst. So these, ironically, those are the classic symptoms of diabetes. And what this medicine does, what this class of medicine does, is it sort of, it sort of reproduces that same effect. So now you're, you haven't crossed the renal threshold. Your blood sugar, rather than being 180 or 200, might be 140. Uh, so you're not spilling on your own. But this medicine will, in a controlled fashion, interfere with your body's ability to resorb blood sugar, and therefore, uh, you will spill extra blood sugar into the urine. Now, again, uh, the disadvantages of this class of medicine are similar to um, some of the things we, I just described that happen in diabetes itself. In other words, frequent urination, um, uh, chemical. Uh, electrolyte uh, issues in the blood if you're urinating lots of salt, urinary tract infections, and so on. Um, and so this is a class of drugs that has side effects. Um, it is also associated with weight loss, although much less dramatically than the uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, and again, it lowers the A1C uh, to a certain extent. It's not a super potent A1C lower but it does uh, work, especially in combination with other medicines. Uh, and these are some of the, uh, the medicines that are uh, available. And again, the big studies of this uh, drug really um, uh, were relatively remarkable when they came out. Uh, <clears throat> these were, in this case, one of, again, dozens of studies, high-risk patients. Uh, and again, this cardiovascular uh, outcome study um, uh, same design, uh, showed a 2% reduction in cardiovascular out outcome uh, <clears throat> and a reduction in all-cause mortality. Uh, in addition, it's shown reductions in stroke, it's shown reductions in heart failure, and it's shown reductions in uh, renal disease. 
So this medicine now has become used not only in the treatment of diabetes, but also uh, in the treatment of heart failure uh, and in the treatment of kidney disease uh, because of the beneficial effects that it has in those two uh, conditions. So in a patient with diabetes who's at risk for both of those conditions as well, um, it's, a, it's another nice drug um, and it's an oral medicine. So it's easier to use than the injections, uh, which is the, what you need to do for the uh, potent GLP-1s. What I've uh, shown is that we have really basically two new classes of medicines uh, that uh, now have been shown to reduce cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, again, it was a little bit of a lucky finding. Is that what we were looking for? Uh, but it's really changed medical practice, uh, both in the care of diabetes, uh, but also, as I mentioned, in heart failure and renal disease uh, uh, as well. So I know uh, this is uh, too hard to read, and I'll, I'm going to break it down in, in the slides that follow. Uh, but this is the new algorithm that uh, is published by the American Diabetes Association just this uh, uh, winter. Uh, and what it make the point it makes, and again I'll break this down, is that it says you'll see at the top you should begin with healthy lifestyle, and in the old version of this, even as early as 2022, but certainly in 2021, the next line would have been something start metformin, and it would have been uh, the first step for everyone. In 2021, it said start metformin as a must. Uh, in 2022, they said, well, maybe not everyone. Maybe it's a should, but not everyone. And now in 2023, there's enough data to say that, and you'll see that metformin is no longer a required or a guideline-based uh, automatic first drug. Rather, what we see is that we think a little bit about what our goals are. What are the patient's conditions uh, that are most dominant uh, for that uh, patient? So if it's a patient with heart disease, that atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, heart disease or stroke, or heart failure, or kidney disease, in those three conditions, then there's a compelling reason to use these new drugs first. And that's different, and it's different as of this year. If the primary concern is blood sugar, a patient who's presenting with very high sugars, new, new diabetes, and so on, uh, then you can still use some of the older uh, medicines. Insulin works very well here. Um, <clears throat> uh, or you can use uh, a combination of medications. Uh, but the, uh, the new drugs can also be used here because especially some of them can be very effective also at lowering blood, uh, blood sugar. So uh, what this slide says is that efficacy for glucose lowering um, even independent of the heart disease and kidney disease stuff, uh, is that uh, uh, some of these drugs, such as semaglutide, uh, tirzepatide, and uh, dilaglutide in high doses uh, can still be very effective blood sugar-lowering medicines. So it's another reason to consider this, these classes of medicines. You don't have to. Insulin works fine to lower blood sugar, but insulin doesn't do this other stuff. Uh, that's the older data that I showed you where it didn't show that uh, blood sugar control prevented cardiovascular complications. But it will lower your blood sugar uh, effectively. And so you can use insulin and you can use combinations of drugs. And uh, increasingly, uh, we're, uh, it's being shown that you can use some of the newer drugs in combination with insulin. Uh, although for some patients, the newer drugs 
may allow people to come off insulin. And then finally is the last column. So sort of three basic uh, principles here is if the major issues are related to weight in a diabetic, then again, uh, looking at the efficacy on weight loss, which I've already discussed, uh, with the highest uh, impact from semaglutide and terzepatide um, uh, at, in causing substantial uh, 12 or so, 15% uh, body weight loss uh, in patients. So you're going to see a lot more of this uh, down the road, especially once we get cardiovascular outcome trials and obesity, and these drugs get start getting paid for uh, by insurances. So just to summarize that slide, if you have a cardiovascular disease, uh, you use a GLP-1 with proven cardiovascular benefit and or you use an SGLT-2 with proven cardiovascular benefit. Uh, until 2022, uh, this was an or, a, uh, one or the other, and now you can use them together. Uh, and so this, again, is changing medical practice. Um, uh, both of these work to reduce risk. This, the SGLT2s are oral. The GLP1s are injectable, except for one medicine, uh, which uh, doesn't have much of, uh, isn't as powerful as the other, the injectables. Uh, but you can use these uh, together. Again, quickly, if you have heart failure, it's a similar story. In this case, it's the SGLT2s uh, that reduce heart failure. Um, the uh, the SGLT, uh, the GLP uh, do not. And kidney disease, again, there's evidence uh, that these uh, drugs uh, will prevent the progression of kidney disease and is safe to use even in advanced kidney disease. And again, if your issues are, if you don't have any of those diseases and you're just worried about getting the blood sugar down into those goals we talked about at the beginning, uh, we can uh, uh, categorize our medicines as very high glucose lowering. Again, uh, the GLP-1s, but insulin's on this list, or you can use combinations of the injectables or combinations of oral medicines. Uh, and then there are other medicines that we still use, uh, including metformin, uh, sulfonylureas, and even uh, pioglitazone, one of the TZDs, um, that can be helpful. You can see the DPP-4 drugs, uh, a little less potent uh, as glucose lowering, and as I mentioned, a little less potent in terms of preventing heart failure or stroke and heart attack, so therefore uh, falling a little bit out of favor um, uh, as we speak. And the weight loss, we've said now several times, uh, the highest efficacy is with semaglutide and trisepatide, keeping in mind that trisepatide is not approved for weight loss, but as a side effect in patients with diabetes, it, does, it is associated with weight loss. Uh, the others also work, uh, but not as well. There have been direct comparisons of say semaglutide and liraglutide, and the semaglutide is uh, more effective. So in summary, um, uh, uh, I hope that was a useful review. Again, I've tried to emphasize what's brand new uh, in the last uh, uh, two or three years, but particularly since January, uh, in terms of our thought process around these medications. Uh, tight control, uh, to review, tight control is not effective in lowering total uh, mortality or cardiovascular mortality, but it does prevent microvascular uh, complications. Uh, we now have newer agents that, again, have been around for a while, but we now have proof of these newer agents. 
that they have uh, good outcome data and can prevent uh, strokes and heart attacks, heart failure, and kidney disease um, in selected circumstances. And these same medications uh, don't cause hypoglycemia unless they're used in conjunction with one of the other medicines that does cause hypoglycemia, and many of them are associated with weight loss. As we said, glucose control, that tight control may be more important early in diabetes. Uh, that's true for type 2 in young, young and middle-aged adults, uh, and certainly true in children uh, and adolescents and young adults who have type 1 diabetes. Remember that good blood pressure control, uh, cholesterol control, smoking cessation, uh, weight management, regular exercise are all extremely important in preventing the complications of diabetes, and in many cases, more so, as we've discussed earlier in the course, uh, than treatment of diabetes itself. Uh, and as I implied at the beginning, uh, prevention of diabetes remains the priority. Uh, the way to do that is to really apply the principles of the Diabetes Prevention Project, uh, which is really a, a calorie reduction, uh, eating a, a heart-healthy diet, and exercising um, uh, 150 to 300 minutes a week. Um, and uh, those uh, are the things we do to prevent diabetes and uh, should be our major, uh, both public health and clinical priority. With that, I'll stop. Um, and thank you all very much for your attention. Uh, and I'll see uh, if we have questions, um, we have time uh, to answer that. So the first question is about bile sequestrants, which is an older class of medicines. Uh, we don't use them uh, very much, uh, but they were one of the first, uh, cholestyramine is an, uh, one of the ones, was one of the first medications uh, shown to prevent, uh, to lower the blood cholesterol. Uh, it didn't do so much, but uh, it interfered with um, uh, the absorption of cholesterol uh, in, the, in the gut. Um, but the bile acids uh, themselves um, don't have much to do with uh, diabetes. Uh, as you suggest, it has more to do with uh, fat digestion. Um, uh, but um, uh, for most people, it's not a major concern. Um, uh, but, it's, but it's fat uh, metabolism uh, in the gut more than, uh, and nutritionally, more than carbohydrate uh, metabolism, which is what diabetes is primarily a disorder of. Do drug companies also fund the meta-analyses? That's an interesting question. No, uh, usually those are funded by uh, independent investigators. Uh, there are a consortium of investigators that do this for a living. Um, um, the Cochrane Group in England is uh, one of the most famous, but there are many others, uh, uh, both in the United States and around the world that uh, do met these kind of meta-analyses. It turns out that there's um, a methodologic rigor associated with doing a good meta-analysis. And so uh, the ones that are done by the people who do this for a living uh, are often uh, better. Uh, and as I mentioned, the one with uh, rosiglitazone may have been uh, had some methodologic flaws that may have led to the wrong conclusion uh, early on in the 2010 or so. Um, but, uh, but no, these are uh, non-commercial agencies. They're not the NIH typically either. Uh, but rather the kind of thing that, uh, like I said, the Cochrane collaboration uh, or some of the other evidence-based medicine uh, collaboratives uh, will do. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is one exception. That is a U.S. That is a government agency, so it's not NIH, but it's funded by HRSA, <clears throat> uh, and it does meta-analyses 
to help it sort its own meta-analyses to help it sort through uh, prevention guidelines. Uh, and those are they publish those and uh, serves as the background for their public health recommendations. Uh, and similarly, the CDC will uh, often do meta-analyses uh, as well as part of their scholarly effort. Uh, but uh, but I, I'm not aware of drug companies funding these. Um, now, you could say garbage in, garbage out. Uh, if all the studies uh, are flawed, putting them all together in a fancy meta-analysis uh, may not really answer the question. It may help you sort through the data that you have. But if the data you have has been confounded uh, or biased in some way, uh, whether that's commercial bias or methodologic bias of other sorts, um, that can be problematic. Uh, and so we are in a bit of a quandary in that uh, over 80% of all clinical trials are, are now funded by industry. Um, and um, uh, the, of course they have um, um, for profit companies with the uh, uh, responsibility to stockholders to sell drugs. Um, and, uh, uh, and one should always read these studies critically and with uh, a grain of salt uh, because of their funding source. Let's see, does using medications in combination allow one to take lower doses with the benefit of reducing side effects because you're taking less of each? Yes, that is correct in most cases. It's not always true um, because you can develop side effects at low doses of medicines as well. Um, but in general, um, most medications, um, the side effects are dose-related, although not all medications. So our principle in, in, in clinical medicine is to start low and go slow. Um, as, in other words, start a medication at a very low dose, let the, uh, the, the patient and the body get used to the medication. Um, we talked about that in the context of cholesterol, for example. It's true in blood pressure as well. Um, and uh, uh, the, tri the, the, the trick, though, the, 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 the trap not to fall into is what I call clinical inertia. So if you start low and go slow then, and you forget to then raise it, you may not be getting the effect that you really hope to see. Uh, so if you do start low, that's fine. That's how I do it. Uh, but make sure you can uh, get up to a healthy dose so you see the benefit. But along the way, you can get uh, side effects at higher doses that you don't see at lower doses. You can then lower the dose. Um, and, uh, and as you suggest, you can add a second medicine uh, and with lower doses of two medicines, uh, avoid potentially avoid side effects. So uh, that slide, that cartoon I showed that showed how the, the fact that these medicines all work through different mechanisms uh, allows that very effectively. So combinations are very fashionable uh, in clinical medicine now. And uh, it, it often you see patients with often on many, many medicines for, uh, for several reasons, but this can, uh, can be one of them. So yes, that's, this is a good thought uh, and something uh, we attend to in some patients. It's a little more uh, costly depending on the, the medication. Um, and uh, although there are some drug companies that make combination pills uh, um, and uh, there are different ways to do this, but it means you have to refill a second prescription instead of one. So it's a, you know, advantages and disadvantages. Of the drugs that the start low and go slow drugs, the ones that are most dramatic in that way now actually are the GLP-1 agonists. So if you start someone on semaglutide, uh, and I think Diana might have mentioned this last week, it can take up to three or four months before you get up to full dose because we start very, very low 
uh, for a month uh, and then wait till the second month to raise the dose and the third month to raise the dose. So it may be almost four months bef- before you get up to the full dose. Uh, and, um, and, and that's uh, a, a, an excellent example of go low, uh, start, start low and go slow. Um, can many of these newer medications be prescribed for type one diabetics? Yes. Uh, and again, uh, but many of these patients are on uh, insulin pumps. But uh, as we learn about their effectiveness in preventing heart disease and strokes and kidney disease, I think we're going to see more and more. There's a little less data in that regard at this time, uh, but they are being used in that manner. And I think we're going to see uh, more and more uh, impact of that um, in, uh, with uh, newer studies. All right. I think we're right at time. Uh, We're out of questions. Um, Let me again thank you very much for your attention. Um, I hope this has been helpful. It's certainly been uh, fun for me um, and um, um, a a pleasure to uh, work with you in this way. Uh, And uh, I wish you a good night and, uh, and all the very best. So thank you all very, very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.